In the last 10 years, our field has gone from an unknown specialty to a household name. This brings unprecedented opportunities, but we need to rise up to meet them and give our patients the care that they deserve. In order to help others get better, we need to be better. This podcast will help you to become more confident with your patients, more successful in your practice or business, and a leader in pelvic health. And we're going to have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising Podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey Nicole. Hello. All right. This is a big week for us. This is a huge week for us actually. So many of you know that we do business mentorship, right? We have business courses available and then we also have a group of freaking 50 rad cash PT, pelvic PT practice owners. And an OT thrown in there. I think we have one OT now. So, you know, we have that group and we, for the first time, are going to meet in person at an in-person retreat this weekend. And I'm freaking so excited. And I was freaking out this last week because it was effing cold in Southern California. Like when I mean cold, I mean like, I'm like turning on the fireplace, getting blankets, like getting pissed off that we pay California prices for this bullshit Freezingness, and it was like forty-five. Because <laughs> we've been pitching it to our people for a long time too. Hey, get Come out of to that Southern California. <laughs> get out of that ice storm in Texas. Come down here, and it was like, uh oh, we better. I was like, I deliver. feel like I'm gonna have an ice storm here. It was like raining. It never rains here, and it was like so cold. But man, this is gonna be so much fun. We've got almost half of our group, like twenty-five people, coming out to Southern California. We're gonna be hanging out all weekend. We've got some amazing programming. We're gonna be diving into some business stuff. This is going to be so much fun. And like always happens, it's coinciding with a hugely busy time for you in actually finishing up this yes, strengthening this, course. Screw this dumb strengthening course. Actually, it's not dumb. It's going to be super bomb. Yeah, I've been, you know, it's kind of rekindled my, I don't know, rant against or whatever we're going to talk about today. But like all of this like evidence-based practice, because as with all courses that I work on, you know, it is important to look at the totality of the research around a topic, right? So when we were writing the book, The Interstitial Cystitis Solution, when I was doing my IC course, when I was doing my rectal course, you have to like look at what the current research says or as current as you can be. And I always get fired up around this because it's so obvious when you actually sit down and read more than just the abstracts. And you guys, who you all know that sometimes you, most of the time, the majority of the time you're browsing through the abstracts. Half the time you can't even get the full text of the article, which by the way, I have a hack for that now that I will share with everybody. But yeah, you're going through and you're just looking at the abstracts and then you look at the conclusion. But man, when you actually sit down and really dive into a topic the devil's in the details always, and the details are in the discussion. And you know, it's just always one of those things where I'm, I'm always shocked at how different the conclusion that you read in the abstract is from the author's discussion section of the paper. And 
gosh, if you're going to quote unquote do evidence-based practice, you really got to like read the whole thing and decide. That's what I've been doing for this last, gosh, months, weeks, what I don't even remember when I started doing this. It's been months. a long time coming. And it's, you know, it's always interesting when Nicole comes in and she's all fired up and she's like, can you believe that this study has this conclusion, but they say this in the discussion? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's because Jesse's a researcher. That's what researchers do. You freaking conniving pieces of shit. <laughs> yes, we are. And I've ghostwritten research for some big places. And that's exactly what it is because they know that most people are only going to read the conclusion. Your publication is based on how strong your conclusion is. If you send in an article to get published and you say, well, you know, I'm not very confident about this data and this conclusion is a little bit contrary to what we expected. And this is and not relevant in clinical practice at all. You're not getting published. <laughs> you're not getting published. So, right? So your conclusion is always very strongly worded. And unfortunately, that's the thing that most of us read for time's sake because of paywalls, all of that stuff. And the discussion part in the abstract is always the shortest because it's the most nuanced and it's hardest to summarize. So I don't know. I just feel like, and by the way, you guys, this is the shit that you guys pay for when you take a course from somebody, right? You pay for somebody that you trust, that you know, that you like, that you think is pretty darn smart to go through and look at all the research and use their brains into like what that says and then have a freaking opinion on it. That's what you guys are paying for. And so it's one of the reasons why we also talk so much about like be strategic. What's the word? Yeah, strategic about who you take courses from because that's what you're getting with that. It and takes a long freaking time. Yeah, and hopefully they're integrating a lot of different things into that, right? That's not just, oh, regurgitating a bunch of research. Here, let me list all of the studies that have been done in the last 80 years on this topic. But like actual critical thought, how it pertains to clinical practice, what you actually do with that, how it translates to real world efforts, life, whatever it is, like those are the things that make this such a challenging endeavor and, and are the reason that courses take I mean, I think Nicole cranks these things out, but like at least six months you've been thinking about this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really, I mean, we always say too, it's like, that's the actual creation part, but the actual, I mean, this is like 16 years of me being in the field and observing and doing and reading and getting taught by my mentors and all of that is coming together in my interpretation and my opinion, essentially, on where we need to go as a field specifically for this course on pelvic floor strengthening. And let me tell you, it needs to freaking change, y'all. So what got you all fired up? Because you came in like storming into the office and we're like, I have, we have to talk about this. Well, it's just, I feel like we're in this phase of pelvic physio, pelvic PT, pelvic OT that is actually pretty stagnant. And this one quote that I ran across in this article from somebody that was commenting on the International Continent Society was talking about like that fact. And she summed it up so perfectly when she was talking about how research in the field had sort of developed. And, and really, at the end of the day, the current research at the time was really describing things that had happened 50, 60 years ago. And she even says, considering this, it does not seem that our interventions have changed that much in the last 80 years. 
yet we can now confirm that they're effective treatment interventions. And that seriously like blew my mind. It's like for a little bit, we're like complacent in the fact that we're in this stagnant phase, like that we're doing the same stuff. In this case, we're talking about pelvic floor strengthening and pelvic floor muscle strength assessment, the same God darn way that we were doing 50 years ago, 80 years ago. And it's like, gosh, come on. Because you know what, you guys, we all feel, we all feel it. We all feel that like putting a finger in someone's vagina when they're supine on the table and asking them to squeeze and relax, we all know that that has nothing to do with freaking running, right? And it's like, how does that even translate? Why am I even doing this? Like, is this even a thing? And I think we've defaulted then into basically having this cognitive dissonance of like, well, what am I doing then? Why is it important? Oh, it's because I need them to be aware of their pelvic floor first. And that's where I really feel like if I were to kind of sum up, I think where we've gone is that we've tried to like justify something that we like kind of deep down know is like not functional, not translating into upright, high level activities. I mean, because we are no longer the 50s, 1950s women that were barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. We're freaking cross-spinning. We're doing orange theory. We're pelotoning. We're skiing. We're doing things way into our 60s and 70s with these athletic types of things. And like, no longer are we just like, don't you know, waddling around the house, like cooking freaking dinner. Like that's not the thing anymore, but we're assessing the pelvic floor as if that's all we're doing. And We know that we all feel it. We all feel that that's not like right. But because we were taught that way, because that's like the way that like most people are doing it, it's what the research shows. We'll go into that in a second. Now I feel like we're trying to justify And now we've come into this whole thing about like, well, my patient needs to be aware of their pelvic floor before they, before I can get them to do anything else. And what I'm finding in the research is that even the people that were doing the research on strength assessments, know that that's not right. That's not right. That's not what we should be doing. We should be doing something different. And so that's, I get fired up about that. That's why I get fired up about it. Cause we all know that it's something that like, doesn't quite seem right, but we have to do it for insurance in some cases, except for if you're in a cash-based physical therapy place and we give a big middle finger to that. And, but the reality is that some people have to do that. And we're like now kind of justifying. So we don't have this like massive cognitive dissonance about why am I doing this again? So we're over-focusing on this like awareness component of the pelvic floor. Man, that is deep. I really feel like that runs deep in the field on a whole lot of it is like wrapped up in that. But basically, I mean, saying like what other field has not changed radically in the last 80 years? Yeah, man. I mean, none. Even PT, like ortho PT. And I don't know a ton about this. You should probably do. Like, I'm sure we're not rehabbing ACL. Were they even doing ACL repairs 80 years ago? I don't think so. I don't know. I had an ACL repair in the 1990s. And even from the time that I had an ACL repair in the 1990s to the 2000s, like my prognosis to get back to sport, my the surgical technique, everything had changed. Even in that 10 years, my scar looks different. The way that they did the graft was different. Like everything was different. And it was with the same surgeon actually, which was kind of cool. But like that to me is like crazy that we're still 
doing some of the same stuff that we're doing freaking 80 years ago. It's like, that's just frankly bullshit. I mean, I can't handle it. And this is why this is what's going to come out in the course. Which is great. Well, I mean, is there another field that we can think of in health, in anything that has not substantially changed, like dramatically, radically changed in the last 80 years? I don't know. I can't think of one. I mean, this, you guys, I feel like kegeling at this point and assessing strength at this point is like, really kegeling is basically like VMO activation for knee pain. Like, we all kind of know that that's like bullshit now. That's like not getting taught. If anybody was like, oh, your VMO needs to be strengthened, we'd all be like, what the hell are you doing? Look at that person's hip for their knee pain. Like what in the hell are you talking about? And I kind of feel for me anyways, that's how kegeling is. I'm like, what the hell are we even doing? Like this is doing nothing. It doesn't make sense anatomically. It doesn't make sense neurologically. And it doesn't make sense for the function of the pelvic floor to be doing like this voluntary contraction business for something that doesn't do all that. But it does make sense to me that we're afraid to challenge what we've been taught, right? Because I feel like, I think that might hit home for a lot of people where you feel that this is not necessarily the right way to be doing it or the most effective way to be doing it, or there has to be a different option. But what is that going to be? I think you asked that really well on a podcast a little while ago. Nicole. Yeah, like, like if we're, we're not about Kegels, then what are we going to be about? Then what are we about? And it's so much easier to kind of cling to that status quo. And like you said, with the awareness thing or whatever it is, find a justification for what we're doing. As long as it means that we can stay safe in that little bubble. I don't know. I feel like we can very much still respect every single physio before us that has, that might even still be practicing, that has made significant strides in our field. And also it's both and, and also challenge the status quo, right? So that's not an either or proposition. It's not, we can't challenge the status quo because we would be disrespecting somebody. It's like, no, because we respect they're pushing the field forward in trying to create a functional assessment of strength, right? That's what they were doing. And they acknowledged that there was limitations in that. And now it's like, but now what? It's like, now that's our time. That's our time for clinical things to change so that we can drive more research. That's what how it works is clinical observation, clinical expertise, clinical reasoning, using our brain takes what we currently know pushes stuff forward, and then research comes to catch it up. That's what happens. That's literally what has happened. And so I feel like this is a time when we need to collectively as a unit push forward in our specialty that way and be okay with saying things like the way that we're currently assessing pelvic floor strength is some bullshit and it's not functional. And I think this is one of the interesting things to me, what you just said about that, Nicole, is that we respect the pioneers in the field because they didn't accept the status quo. They didn't just say, hey, I'm going to do the things that the way that I was taught. I'm going to look at this differently. I'm going to think about this differently. I'm going to do this differently in my clinical practice. Like the giants of the field did that. And they say, too, I'm just going to try some shit out. They basically are like, well, 
if we know this about this thing, then let's just try this and see if it works. And clinical outcomes trump anything else. And it's like, yeah, my patients are getting better. And then we try to retroactively be like, well, why is that happening? And that's like, okay, that's the thing. But the key is to do something different with where we're going. And that's where, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that no one's doing that, but I do feel like collectively we need to make sure that we're moving everybody's knowledge forward and everybody's like, I don't know, giving them comp, giving us confidence to like do that and say these things and then have somebody come in on the back end and be like, oh, is that person assertion true? Is that person's assertion true? That's how we can push our field forward the best, I think. Well, and it's really interesting because what you just read there, right? The history of research in this field is going back and trying to prove things that the field has been doing for 50 years. I love what you said there, that clinical practice drives research, not the other way around. That's what happened when they started doing things. And then they said, well, somebody needs to come along behind us and actually test that stuff. But research is never the thing that's leading out in the field. It's always lagging behind. We're always trying to prove things that we already kind of know are true. Totally. Right. And then I love this other quote that was that research must continue to search for truths, but we have the responsibility to acknowledge the influence of the past and ensure that future research is of relevance and high quality, right? Relevance. So I don't know. I just feel like as I am diving deep into all of this research of pelvic floor strength, pelvic floor strengthening, pelvic floor muscle training, all of the things that, you know, it's just very apparent that that this is an area that needs to get pushed forward so that we don't have things <laughs> developed like Anovo shorts and freaking Amcella chairs, right? Because, oh, because one person said that electrical stimulation one time helped people with incontinence. And I'm just like, oh my God, like what other area do we do that for? And I know that's not a physio that- But ironically, that this still. is what gets us into, like that is now quote unquote evidence-based, right? Novo, I'm sure, is paying for a bunch of research from jackasses like me who are going to rig <laughs> the study to make their stuff look good and write a conclusion like Novo shorts clearly demonstrate the ability to help patients with incontinence. Right. That's the conclusion of the study. And it's not that hard to make that happen. But to me, that, that's the crazy part, right? Is if you're an outsider, right? If you're a Martian flying in, looking at the field, you would say, wow, what are the innovations in pelvic health? It's certainly not happening on the PT side. It is the Mcella and the Anovo and all of that bullshit. Like that's at least new. It's at least pushing things forward. It's totally down the wrong track, but you're not looking around and being like, oh, wow. Like there's so much innovation going on elsewhere. Totally. What else are we going to say about that? I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is where you get fired up, where this is that, I like that term, cognitive dissonance, like that people are feeling that there's a better way and they don't feel like they have the confidence or the permission or the information or the knowledge, the, yeah, or the, the clinical direction. experience, yeah, whatever it is to practice the way that you kind of have, are feeling like you should. Yeah, man. That's like when I've been starting to talk about this on social media a little bit more, I've gotten so many DMs from you guys being like, I feel it too. I feel like it's sort of, we need like a signal, like kind of like Katniss in what's Hunger that Games. in the Hunger Games where I can't whistle, but you know, she has that. Oh, 
hey. Under pressure. And guys, I'm a terrible whistler. I'm like an innie whistler. I, I can't whistle like going out. I whistling in, not whistling I totally out. do. When I, was I should get my up. dad to do it. My dad, oh. so total sidebar. My dad is like the best whistler. He can whistle crazy, crazy, crazy he things. He likes whistling harmonies to himself. Yeah, he's it's crazy. It's like, I would just walk in and he's just doing it. I mean, yeah. it's not even like... All with like all kinds of notes and everything. And in fact, this is also a fun fact. Like when we they were moving out of their house, I was like, found some of their yearbooks and he was whistling through the halls in high school. They were like talking, making fun of him in his yearbook about that. Anyways, uh, maybe I can get him to ma- make us a whistle. Oh, that would be cool. Can we put that as like our thing on TikTok? <laughs> yeah. Make a viral thing. Oh, hey, yeah. but that was pretty good for me. My, Jesse, my still, Jesse still wants to pat himself on the back. I, yeah, I, I think I might have actually hurt my shoulder. So if anybody knows a good PT, let me know from all of that. But <laughs> usually I only have one note and I feel like I would be like a good in like a whistling bell choir or something. But that one hit. Yeah, man. Good. Maybe we can have podcast RJ do a little auto tune on that just to make sure it's perfect. <laughs> auto tune the whistle. Totally. Anyways, we need some sort of like a signal where it's like we see that this needs to change and we're Committed to doing it. However, for insurance, you might still need to do it. <laughs> That's a whole it. other thing. And I know you're going to talk about that in the course on like what to actually do practically with some of this when there are limitations, there are things. And, you know. And what is good about some of those things? Like right. what should we take away from those things and what, and what should we just sort of scrap? That's all going to be in there. I feel like this is where it is. It's developing best practices based on what we know specifically from research what we know from clinical practice and what we just know about how like the body works and just general physical therapy, common sense. Right. But, but then it's like, yeah, then this is where it also is super cool too, which is why we did one of the podcast episodes on how the pelvic floor is different because we know a lot, like we are musculoskeletal neuromuscular experts of the body. Like that's what our doctorate is as physical therapists. And then pelvic is on top of that, of the pelvic girdle And so I feel like there are some things about strengthening that are very similar to the pelvic floor. And then there's other areas of the pelvic floor that are very different in terms of its mechanism and anatomy and function that we do need to take into consideration. So it's not just necessarily applying what we know from a physical therapy standpoint, because like in the biceps or the quads or something, and then just applying that to the pelvic floor because that's also not always the case. So where is the the blending of those two? What do we know about what about muscle strengthening, muscle function, muscle activation patterns, all of that stuff? How is the pelvic floor similar? How is the pelvic floor different in that? And then how should we create the blend of those things in the most functional way possible for the best outcomes for our patients? And that is the summary of the course. <laughs> That's it. So guys, that is, we're going to be having more information on that. If you guys are listening to this podcast, when it comes out at the end of, what are we in February? This is crazy. How are we already in February? I have no idea. But if you guys are listening to this, make sure to get on the wait list. That's going to be at pelvicptrising.com slash Kegels. You can get on that. We'll send you all the information. We'll make sure to get you guys in for the, all the information, the early bird access, all of that good stuff. You guys know we try to take care of those of you guys who do something with us for the first time because it is an expression. I liked how you said that, Nicole, an expression of trust that you are going to be diving into the research, pouring over it, synthesizing that with 
your clinical experience, with everything else that you know about the field and coming up with something that really is best practices for public force strengthening and trying to push this thing forward so that we're not reading another article in another 80 years in 2180 saying, <laughs> So wow, help me God if that happens. We're really still doing the same things we were doing 160 years ago. Yeah, man, not going to happen. But I will say this, like one of the things I will pat myself on the back for a little bit too here. I am really good at getting people to think differently, right? I am good about presenting that. That's what I feel like my IC course did, rectal course, public PT essentials, um, think differently. What this course will not be I can guarantee you, is a list of the exercises that you should do for the pelvic floor. That is not going to be the thing because I'm going to teach you how to think. And then that is the magic is that that's the creativity that each and every one of us can put their our own spin on stuff and use your own ethos and the way that you like to give out exercises and stuff to do. But you're going to use these like newer principles and thought processes and blend that with your own stuff. That is it. I think we need to wrap up on that, but that had us fired up. Nicole stormed in here, said that we needed to talk about I was this. like, we need to do a podcast immediately. Like, this is ridiculous. And it just goes into, don't we have a podcast on evidence-based practice, like evidence police and all of that stuff about how... Yeah, so if you can look back at those podcasts as well, you guys. We've already done some podcasts on that, but this was like getting me fired up today. So we wanted to talk about it. Yeah. It is not going to be the same 80 years from now as it is today. So that is where we're going, guys. If you have any questions, make sure to reach out. Let us know. Make sure to get on that wait list, pelvicptrising.com slash kegels. And as always, if you have any questions, want to reach out, we love to keep this conversation going. And let's continue to rise.